Well, good evening. Uh, I bring you greetings from the saints of Grace Family Baptist Church in Conroe and some of you other pastors. I don't know if you're like me, but I, I came in a few minutes after dinner and, and to come up and check out the pulpit. And there was another one here a minute ago, and I thought, I'm going to have a lot of real estate. I can spread out and get comfortable. Luckily for you, they took one of them away. But this is a, a humble time for me. Uh, uh, the very first General Assembly I ever attended was at this church uh, eight years ago. Uh, I was greeted warmly. I was welcomed by the brothers here, welcomed by the members of this church body, welcomed by, by John and Roberta and their sweet family. And so now to come back and be able to open the scriptures uh, to you is, is, is an honor and a privilege and, and a humbling experience for me. I'm thankful for that. Um, if you'll turn with me to our confession of faith, I asked Pastor John to read from 1 Corinthians 5. That's one of the scripture proofs in our paragraph today, paragraph 7. And I think back over the last eight years and since we, our church uh, came into the life of, of confessional associationalism and thinking through those issues and seeing how profoundly sweet the doctrines of chapter 26 have been in the life of our church and to me personally, working out in, in real time and an experimental understanding of what we see in the very first paragraph of chapter 26, the risen and exalted Jesus Christ in all of his splendor and glory and authority and how that authority just permeates the rest of the chapter and how it has worked out. So as we consider together tonight, chapter 26 and paragraph 7, our emphasis is on the Lord Jesus Christ and specifically the authority and power that he has given to local churches like this one and to like the ones that you represent. And it's a remarkable thing. It is something that we can just simply skim over and fail to give it the weight that it ought to receive. This is an awesome thing. And sometimes we use that word awesome a lot, don't we? And we overuse it, we misuse it. But this really is, in the truest sense of the word, an awesome thing that the risen and exalted Jesus Christ has extended. He has delegated his authority to the church of Jesus Christ, to the churches of Jesus Christ. And that will be an important distinction I'll mention in a little while. The title of tonight's message is Necessary Power and Authority. Necessary Power and Authority. And if, if I were to summarize chapter 7, if I wanted to sort of reword this in, in a way that is perhaps more accessible than the older language, I might, I might do it like this. The exalted Jesus Christ has delegated to his duly constituted churches his own power and authority which he deems necessary to carry out both the orderly worship of the triune God and the faithful discipline and instruction of his sheep in his name, according to the clear instruction of his word. So as we unpack this, I want to look at it in three headings. The first two is where we'll spend the majority of our time, and, and the last one uh, I'll touch upon only briefly because it really carries over into the next two evenings and then even the subsequent paragraphs. But follow along with me as I read from the Second London Baptist Confession. And again, our conviction is, is this is the articulation. This is the summation of what God's Word reveals to us. 
There's nothing here that the confession makes true that Christ has not already made true and certain and infallible in his own word. So as we read paragraph 7, understand this is the summary of the word of God. To each of these churches thus gathered, according to his mind declared in his word, he hath given all that power and authority which is in any way needful for their carrying on that order in worship and discipline which he hath instituted for them to observe with commands and rules for the due and right exerting and executing of that power." Let's notice in the first place the exclusive sphere of this delegated authority. This, the exclusive sphere of this delegated heavenly authority. The paragraph begins with, to each of these churches thus gathered. The language here refers us back to the preceding paragraphs. The, we'll consider in a few moments the specific purpose and extent of that authority, but first, Let's ponder together, again, this is the awesome weight of this statement. To, these, to each of these churches, thus gathered according to his mind declared in his word, he, this is the risen Christ, hath given all that power and authority. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the exalted and glorified Jesus Christ, the potentate of time, the Alpha and the Omega, has given, has delegated his particular jurisdiction, a particular jurisdiction of his power and authority to creatures. But not to creatures haphazardly or, in an, or unconstrainedly. Paragraphs 5 and 6, if you'll refer back there just briefly, in paragraph 5, we see in the execution of this power. Now, what power is that? Well, it's the power that God the Father has given to the risen and exalted Christ. In, in the execution of this power, says paragraph 5, Christ is so entrusted, the Lord Jesus calls out of the world unto himself through the ministry of his word by his spirit those that are given unto him by, this, by his Father. And they, those called, may walk before him in all the ways of obedience, which he prescribeth to them in his word. Those thus called he commands to walk together in particular societies or churches for their mutual edification and the due performance of that public worship which he requireth of them in this world. Then paragraph six says the members of these churches, these that are comprised of those whom Christ has called out of darkness and into light, the spirit of the risen Christ has called them, Christ's redemptive work is effectually applied to them, and Christ commands them, commands us, to walk together in orderly societies called churches. And the members of these churches are saints by calling, visibly manifesting and evidencing in and by their profession and walking, their obedience unto all, unto that call of Christ, and do willingly consent to walk together according to the appointment of Christ, giving up themselves to the Lord and one to another by the will of God in professed subjection to the ordinances of the gospel. Notice the repetitive, the repetitive idea, the repetitive concept that it is Christ that is working here. It is Christ's authority that is accomplishing the Father's task. In paragraph 5, we saw that. It is prescribeth in his word. 
Then in paragraph six, it is saints by calling. They are obedience under the call of Christ. This is by the appointment of Christ. They give themselves up to the Lord. It is by the will of God, and it's all done in professed subjection to the ordinances of the gospel. All of this is centered upon the inspired word of God, which is the very authority of Christ expressed in written form to us. And one of the things that happens here, we see in, very, in paragraph seven now, we come back to each of these churches. The churches that are defined comprehensively in paragraphs five and six to each one of these churches, Christ has given his power and authority. And we can lose sight in our day how controversial such a statement as that was in the 17th century. To, to those who were the regular guy on the street in the 17th century, to hear such a word that Christ has given authority to a local congregation, the only construct, the only system they understood was either episcopacy, either the Roman version or the English version, or a newer expression was a Presbyterian form, which was a a bottom-up but still hierarchical. So for our 17th century Baptist forefathers to say, according to the scriptures, that Christ has given ordinary, humble, local churches the very power and authority of the risen Christ was nothing short of revolutionary. That wasn't novel in the sense that they made it up. They got this directly from and immediately from the scriptures. And Baptists have almost always faced a measure of persecution for our particular views, pun intended, intended indeed including our regard for understanding of the Scripture's teaching on ecclesiastical authority. But we ought not to to draw the conclusion that this debate no longer rages. See, we can look out at at the evangelical landscape, and we see all kinds of independent congregations, don't we? In fact, that's now the norm In fact, there is a a radical expression of that independency in many places. We may be tempted to take for granted that the local church governance is is not a controversial subject. We live in an age in which independent, non-associated, non-affiliated, non-denominational, and even unaccountable churches, intentionally unaccountable churches, are perhaps the rule rather than the exception. But we shouldn't draw from that observation the conclusion that the matter of Christ's authority, his unique authority in a local congregation, we ought not to assume that that matter is now settled. It's different, but it's not settled. Now, the controversy is not so much local church versus a hierarchical authority. What's the issue now? It's whether Christ rules a local church or I do or you do. It's, it's, is it Christ ruling the local church, or is it the sovereign self that rules the local church? And the various expressions of that sovereign self. It might be the self-appointed pastor who sovereignly wants to rule the church. It might be the board of deacons. It might be the, the, this, this clique within a church that says, we rule here. See, the issue of authority still remains, doesn't it? That's still the rub, isn't it? That's still the main issue. And our confession articulates that it is to each of these churches thus gathered according to the mind of Christ 
declared in his word. It is there and there alone that the power and authority of Christ resides. It is to the local churches that he has given his keys of the kingdom. And there are many men, there are perhaps families, there are are organizations that have sought to usurp these keys of the kingdom that are given only to the local church. You know, I remember when I was in high school, we had a janitor who had this really impressive key ring that hung off and there must have been hundreds of keys on there. And I think if there were a, a, a separate key for every door in the church, he still would have had more keys than doors. But you know, I've known some church members who seem to carry around the same kind of keychain. They think they have a key to unlock everything, that they have the authority in the political sphere, in other people's homes, to in the consciences of their wives, the tax office, the courthouse, the sheriff's department. They think they hold a key to all of it. Christ has given his authority in a unique way only to the local church. This issue of authority remains one for which we need very clear biblical understanding. And and I make no claims of expertise in in areas of, of public policy or group psychology or education or cultural anthropology or any of those kinds of things, but I don't think you have to be to discern that in our culture we have an authority problem. We have a fundamental issue in which the majority of our citizens, the majority of our neighbors, and perhaps even the majority of our church members don't really understand the nature of the authority of Jesus Christ. And particularly, what we're concerned about this evening is how that authority applies to a local church and where it applies. It is vital for us to understand and to teach that Christ has vested real power, real authority in his local churches. To my fellow pastors, do you sometimes put upon your your own shoulders, and I'm including myself here, a responsibility that Christ has not given you to bear? And you've lost sleep. Because you've, in a sense, usurped that. I thought, this is, this is a weight that I have to bear. When Christ has given it to his church gathered, his church assembled according to his mind, some of us may need to repent of relying upon our own wisdom, our own understanding, our own skill. Do we see the entire congregation, the entire body of Christ as spirit-filled resources, as vessels Imperfect, but vessels of Holy Spirit wisdom. Do we understand our congregations in that way? See, the writers of our Baptist Confession were clear, and again, revolutionary in their time, in stating this power, this authority is given to each of these churches. And those are the two key words, each one and churches, plural. And you know, of course, that our Baptist fathers had recovered this biblical doctrine of Christ's immediate authority resting under the sphere of a local church. The keys of the kingdom do not reside in an episcopacy. They do not reside in a presbytery. They do not reside in democratic organizations of congregations, but only in local churches. And, and, and brothers, I, I'm so thankful for this local association, for this national association of churches, and I, and I love the fellowship we enjoy among us, but I'm grateful 
that we all agree together that Christ has not given the association of churches his keys. He's given it to his local churches. And our fathers, who wrote the words in our confession of faith, make reference also. We read earlier 1 Corinthians 5, but they also make reference to Matthew 18, and particularly verses 17 and 18. And, and, and you know, of course, this text deals with the church's authority, spiritual authority, to exclude a member from its midst. And not just a physical exclusion, but far more significant, a spiritual one. To say this one is not a member of the kingdom of heaven as far as we are able to discern. In Matthew 18, verse 17, Jesus says, if he, this is the one who has been accused, if he refuses to listen to the witnesses, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. See, this authority to bind and loose references referenced here refers back two chapters in Matthew to Matthew 16. This is this famous exchange here that the Lord has with his disciples where he asks the disciples, who do the people say that I am? Isn't that a fundamental question? Who do the people say that I am? And, and of course, Peter speaking, they, the group says, well, well, some say Elijah, some Jeremiah, some maybe one of the other prophets. Okay, but who do you say that I am? What about you? And Peter, speaking for the 12, says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus, you know, you've got to almost imagine the expression on his face, and maybe even on Peter's, where Peter's like, oh, I got it right this time. And he said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not given to you, but my Father in heaven has given this to you. And upon, you are Peter, and upon this rock, upon your confession, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And I will give to you, I will grant to you the keys of the kingdom by which you bind and loose. This is language of delegation. I'm going to give to you, I'm going to delegate to you as my earthly representatives, my sovereign authority, the keys of the kingdom. It's an awesome thing to meditate upon, Jesus declares unambiguously that he gives to his gathered church the authority of heaven itself. Now that ought to arrest our attention. That ought to stop us in our tracks. For Christ to say, I've given to men, I've given to churches, I've given to creatures my power and authority. And surely any of us any of us as pastors in particular, if you, when you've had to lead your respective churches through the process of formal corrective discipline, and especially when it leads to the excommunication, to the exclusion of a member, surely we've been gripped by that awesome and sober responsibility. As we read earlier, as Pastor John read at 1 Corinthians 5, Take particular note of verses 3 through 5. 
Paul says, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this as though I were present. Notice what he says. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you were assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And then down at the very bottom of, the pair of, of chapter 5, he says, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? See, that's an expression of power. The, the idea of, of, of power, even the definition of power, of course, is twisted and perverted in, in our day. But the idea of power is this, this ability to make a judgment on behalf of Christ. The ability to discern here that this man is an evildoer and outside the kingdom. That's a weighty responsibility. Paul uses here two phrases that express his understanding of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He says, in the name of our Lord Jesus and with the power of our Lord Jesus. About the time, this time last year, our church body took up the very sad task of carrying out an exclusion from membership that very closely paralleled 1 Corinthians 5. And to stand and to read this chapter before the saints and to say, this is our explicit duty from our king. We, we have a duty to follow his word, make a judgment on his behalf, exercise his authority here, and exclude this member. We had a woman whose sexual sin was of a kind that even pagans will not tolerate. And it's, and it's almost impossible it's almost impossible to describe the, the fear and sobriety that gripped our congregation that afternoon as we had to weigh this. And we had to declare with one voice, she is not among us any longer. And, and to take, those, take up those keys was not something we, we delighted in doing. It wasn't something we wanted to do according to our humanity but it was something that our Lord said, this is an act of potential mercy to her to hand her over to Satan for the destruction of her flesh so that her spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Our most wise, most pure, omnipotent Son of God has delegated his power and his authority to his churches. And it ought to summon, it ought to summon saints, not just, not just pastors, every single one of you who name the name of Christ, it ought to summon our most fervent prayers and sober judgment. This is a weighty matter. And we need to understand and seek to apply this heavenly reality of all the governing entities on the planet, of all the various spheres of authority. Only the local church of Jesus Christ only the local church of Jesus Christ is authorized to gather and to conduct public worship. No other authority possesses authority to discipline the people of God on spiritual matters. 
to make a judgment on someone's soul. The civil magistrate is able to, to exercise judgment on a man's body and maybe incarcerate him or even put a needle in his arm. But our Lord Jesus said, we ought not to fear the one who can kill the body, right? We're the one who, can, who has to, we're the one who, we were to fear the one who can kill your soul. I've told our people several times, we don't fear the one who can kill your body because the worst he can do is kill half of you and that only temporarily. Because the body will rise again. Now, I want to say something else very briefly. My preaching mentor advised me about a decade and a half ago. He said, never open a door in a sermon that you're not going to close. That's good advice. And ordinarily I follow that, but I'm not going to heed that tonight. I'm going to disregard that advice in this instance. There's another question that's in the background. It's in the background of the text. In fact, we even had a discussion this afternoon in our deliberations on this issue. I think it's for good reason. I think it's for good reason that it's somewhat in the background. The historical record seems to indicate that our particular Baptist fathers were not in lockstep agreement on whether the keys were given per se by Christ to the elders of a church or to the assembled congregation. And I suspect that there are the nuanced positions held by the writers of our confession are mirrored even in this assembly. In his book, Edification of Beauty, Beauty, Jim Renahan really frames the issue succinctly. He says, the question is at hand is this. Where is the seat of authority for the government of the church? Is it in the church as a gathered body and thus delegated to the elders as their representatives? Or is it in the elders as a ruling body delegated directly from Christ? And that's an important question. I'm not going to answer it. But I am going to exhort you to make sure that you've answered it in your local church. In, 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 in however you are structured, in whatever way you've defined yourself in your documents, make sure that it's, that it's articulated very clearly, that your people understand this. I think there's, there's good reason for us that we might have, again, nuanced differences on this view. So I am opening a door I don't intend to close. And I do have an opinion on the matter, but that's going to leave the matter where I believe it ought to be left to each local church. Because the power and authority of the risen Jesus Christ is real. I advise only this, make sure that that answer is clearly articulated. Make sure that your people understand it. Make sure, your people, make, make sure you have an understanding of, of how you've come to that view from the scriptures and from our confession of faith. We have in our local churches true power, true authority, and, and because that's the case, we have to give a, a careful attention not only to the fact that that authority exists and that it exists in local churches, but we need to understand the purpose and extent of that authority. And our confession is very helpful here to understand the purpose of that authority. So that's our next, that's our next heading, the purpose and extent of this delegated authority. Now, the next couple of paragraphs that we'll see over the next two evenings, paragraphs eight and nine in particular, deal with the appointment of officers and the further ordering of Christ's church. And so we'll consider the specifics in those paragraphs. But before we address those specifics, we need to really step back and think about what's the purpose of this authority? So Christ has given authority to his churches. We're told that it is, it is for 
the order or bring about an order of worship and discipline. So our confession, I think, asserts at least three things about this power and authority with respect to purpose. Number one is that his delegated power and authority are necessary. It's a necessary power. Secondly, his power and authority are purposeful. And thirdly, his delegated power and authority are limited or bounded. First, and and only briefly, let's consider that, that Christ's delegation of his power, the delegation of his authority to his people is, is needful, to use the word in our confession. He has given all that power and authority which is in any way needful for their carrying on that order in worship and discipline. All the way back in paragraph or chapter 5 of our Confession of Faith, where we articulate the doctrine of providence, there in paragraph 3, it says, God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means, yet he is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. God has purposed to use the means of his local church to carry out a particular purpose, or purpose says, in the lives of his people. So we're not free to ignore or to dismiss that authority and power because it is the very means by which Christ is calling his people to himself, sanctifying them and preserving them for the day of his glory for the day of our glory. So these keys that he's given to us are necessary. We are not free to disregard them. We are not free to set them aside. You know, in our church body, we have a lot of young families. And we're thankful for that. And so with young families, we often have a lot of young children. And some of those families are new to faithful biblical instruction. They're new to the idea of biblical child training. So when we introduce them to the concepts like, you need to spank that boy, they think, well, that's an optional thing. See, a parent is given that tool, that instrument, that authority, and God has said it ought to be expressed, it ought to be utilized in a particular way. It is needful for the training of that child. And I think, well, but is it needful? Is it really necessary? And sadly, I know I have been, and probably many of you have been in churches where there was discipline that needed to take place. And the keys were somewhere in a bottom drawer. Nobody could remember where we put them. Nothing was done. Here is a needful use of Christ's authority, and it was utterly ignored. But these are not optional methods. This is not an optional instrument. And so, too, the keys of the kingdom. Christ's power and authority are not keys that we're permitted to just hang on a hook somewhere, to discard them, to put them in a closet and never use them. They are necessary keys. But necessary for what? Necessary for what purpose? This, the purpose here articulated in our confession for ecclesiastical authority is to take that which the Father has appointed to the Son, and that which the Son has given or or delegated to the church of Jesus Christ, to the churches of Jesus Christ, for the purpose of establishing an order in worship and discipline. If you'll notice, the language here in paragraph 7, this authority, 
power and authority which is in any way needful for their carrying on that order in worship and discipline. This parallels. This parallels something we see in chapter 26 in verse 5. These that he has called may walk before him in all the ways of obedience which he has prescribed to them in his word. It is given for their mutual edification and due performance of that public worship. You see the parallel. Worship and discipline is paralleled with mutual edification and worship. We understand, we think about purpose in general. Use proceeds from purpose. Execution follows design. Implementation flows from telos, from its end, its purpose. So before we can truly understand the implementation of Christ's authority that he has delegated to his churches, we really need to understand its purpose. Several years ago, I'm, I'm a woodworker by, by hobby, and, and I counted up recently as I was thinking about this, this message. I've got four different or five different powered handheld saws. I've got, I think, four or five different big stationary powered saws. And I've got a whole arsenal of handheld, hand-powered saws. And several years ago, I had a pastor friend of mine who brought his sons over to work on a project that uh, his wife had seen on Pinterest, and we're, we set about to build it. And at one point, he stops me and says, wait a minute. You, made, you cut this board with that saw, and you cut that board with this other saw, and you've cut this one with a different saw. Why? Because each one had a different purpose. Each one was designed to operate in a different way. See, implementation flows from telos, from its end, from its purpose. Each tool is suited to a particular occasion or a particular purpose. And, and certainly, there were some, these saws have an overlap in their function. But if you've ever tried to drive a nail, for example, with the back end of a wrench, now some of you like, you've done it, and it can be done, right? But it's not optimal, is it? There's nothing better suited and nothing more satisfying to get a nail flush with the wood than a good old hammer, right? In a similar way, Christ has given his church's authority for a particular purpose or purposes. Christ has delegated his heavenly authority to his churches, and if we think about that authority, and authority in general as a tool, or if that sounds too crude, perhaps an instrument maybe better suits you. But authority is an instrument, and it's given to accomplish a particular purpose, and, and much confusion on this issue of authority, in fact, even much abuse of that authority could be prevented if we understood its telos, if we understood its purpose. That authority doesn't exist for our own ends, for our own use. It exists for the purposes given directly by Christ himself. And let's consider also that this purpose of authority delegated by Christ to his churches is given for two specific areas, two things that are articulated specifically in our confession by way of purpose. It's order in worship and discipline. Worship 
and discipline. According to our confession of faith, which I think is the accurate summary of the Scriptures, the purpose of ecclesiastical authority is for carrying on that order in the explicit spheres of discipline and worship. Now, this doesn't mean that we take these words in such a wooden manner that we think the church has zero authority unless we can narrowly construe it as applying immediately to public worship or to, or to corrective discipline. And, and the proof of that is paragraphs 8 through the end of chapter 26 and chapter 27 and chapter 28 and 29 and 30 where the authority of Christ begins to work its way out in very tangible ways. For example, the next two paragraphs that we'll see tomorrow evening and Thursday evening show how this delegated power and authority of Christ works itself out in the appointment of officers within a body of Christ. So the terms worship and discipline are broad enough to encompass all the necessary affairs of a local church but no more than that. There, there, is, there is a limit here. There is a boundary here while still using terms that are sufficiently broad to meet all the needs of a local church. So we have to say these terms have both a limiting effect but also a prescriptive effect for the purpose that God has given to us for the use of his authority. Christ's power and authority is not delegated for the purpose of feeding the egos of pastors or church members. Christ's authority is not given for the purpose of building up the reputations of men or building empires or dynasties or programs. The authority that Christ has given to his church is not for the purpose of building political spheres of influence political structures. The, the authority that Christ has delegated to his local churches is not for the purpose of regulating the ordinary spheres or the ordinary affairs of the sphere of the home or the individual conscience. Christ's delegated power and authority is not to impose certain lifestyle characteristics or preferences that the pastor or even the collective will of the church members want to practice. The authority of Christ given to his local churches is not to usurp the consciences of individual believers. Several years ago, we had a visitor that had come, a family that eventually joined with us, and they'd come from a Pentecostal church, a very legalistic church, and um, pastors, I know you've seen this where you have someone come to your church and it's almost like that the dog that's been beaten and, and you just sort of raise a hand and, and you, you get that withdrawal. And, and this, this sweet family was like that. And we were at a fellowship meal one day and, and we were talking about some of these issues and he, he sheepishly asked me, so can I ask you something? It's a little sensitive. I said, sure, and he's looking around. And he said, is it right for a pastor to teach from the pulpit what kind of underwear is acceptable for a woman to wear? I'm not making that up. And of course I told him, no, certainly not. The authority of Christ is not given. That's an extreme example perhaps, but, but you've, you, could, you know of other examples. 
where men have sought to bind the consciences and, and, and warp and constrain men and women into, into things that Christ hasn't said or interfere in, in, in the affairs of a family and the affairs of an individual that don't belong to the church or, or affairs of the state that are not given to the church. So there is a limiting effect to the language of our, of our confession. It is given, Christ has given to his churches anything that is needful for their carrying on that order in worship and discipline. But nor is the power and authority of this that Christ has given to local churches without accountability to the broader body of Christ, which is largely one of the reasons we're together, isn't it? Because we believe that Christ has, has designed, has, in his wisdom, has given his authority to local churches, but that local authority in those local churches is to be expressed in a broader communion of churches working together. Paragraph 15 in our confession, it asserts this, that when any member or members of any church are injured in or by any proceedings in censures not agreeable to truth and order. See, that phrase harkens back to paragraph 7. Christ is given his authority, his power, which is in any way needful for the carrying on that order in worship and discipline. Paragraph 15 says, what happens if that's gone awry? What happens if that order has been upset, if that has been disordered in a local church, either with respect to collectively all the members of that church or even one precious sheep has been the victim of disorderly appropriation, application of Christ's authority. Christ is concerned about that. And we ought to be concerned about that. The confession goes on in paragraph 15, it is according to the mind of Christ that many churches holding communion together do by their messengers meet to consider and give their advice in or about that matter in difference to be reported to all the churches concerned. See, churches may not consider themselves wholly unaccountable. The authority that he has given to us is real. It is awesome in the truest sense of the word, and yet it is not unbounded. It is not unaccountable. Christ's delegated power and authority are necessary. We must use the keys. We must use the authority that Christ has given to us. We don't have the option on the one hand to set the authority aside and say, that's an awesome, weighty thing. I dare not touch it. But on the other hand, we don't swing it about like a battle axe, as if we have no accountability, no boundary, no limit. And we, when we have to remember that, that Christ's delegated power and authority, it's purposeful. It, it is given for a particular design by our most wise, sovereign Lord. And you and I don't get to decide what those purposes are. Christ alone has, has decided that, has communicated to that, and commands our obedience to it. Christ's delegated power and authority are indeed limited. There's a, there are boundaries to this power and authority. But as we think through this, set your mind on 
this glorious thought. No other entity on the planet is authorized to conduct public worship. No other entity on the planet is authorized to proclaim the gospel and demand faith and repentance to it. No other entity on the planet is authorized to break bread and pour wine out and say, this is my body which is for you. This is my blood of the new covenant. No other entity is authorized to do that. No other entity on the planet has the power to exercise a judgment on the state of a man's or a woman's soul. Isn't that sobering? No other entity has what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 5. In the name of Christ, enter this judgment. Declare this judgment. What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So we've seen here the sphere of the authority that Christ has delegated to his churches. It is to his local churches. Each one and plural. We've also seen the purpose and the extent of that authority, to carry on that order in worship and then to have that authority bounded. Let's consider lastly, and I told you up front this would be the briefer of the three, let's consider the objective standard for the use of this authority. And and this final phrase that we see in paragraph 7 with commands and rules for the due and right exerting and executing of that power. So these are, these are words of limitation once again. The due and right exerting and executing of that power. But not only are these words of limitation, these, these are words of action. There is an exerting, there is an, 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 an executing of the power. There's not, again, the option of setting it aside, nor is there the option of using it in a way not prescribed by Christ. Christ has delegated his power and authority to his churches, and he's done so with the explicit purposes given to us, and he's given to us an objective standard of that authority, and it is nothing other than his word. The word of God, which in his providence he's caused to be written down for us, that we can read it and study it, memorize it, and pass it to the next generation. And see, this, this of course, is, we think about the historical contract, contrast, context, there was such a contrast with Rome, wasn't there? See, Rome had this upside down and backwards. Rome said, no, it is the church that gives authority to the word. What blasphemy. It is the word of God which authorizes the church to act on Christ's behalf. And our confession makes this very plain. It's almost a statement that sort of teases a little bit. So I'm going to leave you hanging because we'll get to some of this tomorrow and Thursday. 
some of the, the specific application of these commands and rules, such as how are officers to be appointed. But these remaining paragraphs, we walk through the rest of chapter 26. Paragraph 8, particular church gathered and completely organized according to the mind of Christ consists of officers and members. This is still carrying on that order in worship and discipline. Then in paragraph 9, the way appointed by Christ, you see his headship in all things, is the way appointed by Christ for the calling of any person fitted and gifted by the Holy Spirit under the office of bishop or elder in a church is that they be chosen or he be chosen thereunto by the common suffrage of the church itself. Then paragraph 10 describes for us what is this work of the pastors. Now that they've been called, now that they've been set aside under the jurisdiction, under the authority of Christ, what are they to do? They're constantly to attend the service of Christ and his churches in the ministry of the word and prayer with watching for their souls and so on. Then paragraphs, paragraph 11 describes it that Christ under his authority has extended that authority to preach the gospel not only to those ordained and set apart as officers in the church, as pastors, but there are others gifted and fitted by the Holy Spirit and approved and called by the church who may and ought to perform the work of preaching the gospel. See, it's an extension of Christ's authority for order and worship. Paragraph 13, here's how this word of God in order and worship constrains even the individual believer within a church. No church members upon any offense taken by them, having performed their duty required of them, towards a person they are offended at ought to disturb any church order or absent themselves from the assemblies of the church or administration of any ordinances upon the account of such offense at any of their fellow members, but to what? Wait upon Christ. Because he's the one in charge here, isn't he? But, but doesn't our flesh provoke us at every turn to think something contrary to this? But, but, but I'm in charge. I mean, from the time a youngest child can talk, they're asserting that. There's that, that, that wrestling for the reins of authority in the home. I'm in charge. And it is the precious, sacred duty of daddy and mommy to say, no, you're not. And it is the, the, it is the responsibility of every single member of the body of Christ self-consciously to deliberately remind himself, to remind herself, you are not in charge. Christ runs this church. The pastor's not the head. Collectively, the congregation isn't the head. Christ is. And he has given an objective standard for how that is to be worked out. Paragraphs 14 and 15 deal with the authority of Christ expressed in, in, with respect to how that order of worship and discipline is expressed in communion between and among churches. And then, of course, you turn over to chapter 27, the communion of saints. Here again, we see the, the, the authority and power of Christ working out the order of worship and discipline with respect to our mutual duties one to another within the body of Christ. It is Christ who's given gifts to men. It is Christ who's given the resources. It is Christ who's given all these things. He runs them all. He rules them all. And he tells each, every, each and every individual member, this is your duty one to another in subjection to your king. Chapter 28, 
Christ's ordinances, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. Isn't that an expression of Christ's authority, power and authority in that order of worship and discipline? 29 and 30, of course, express those in fuller detail. Christ has given to us an objective standard. So that last phrase here in paragraph 7, with commands and rules for the do and right exerting and executing of that power. They are crucial then to remind us as pastors. They are crucial to remind every single member of the body of Christ in the churches in which we serve that Christ's power and authority is to be exercised only, only according to his commands, only according to his, his rules that he has revealed in his word. We are not free to be innovators. We are not called to develop a new system to design a better mousetrap with respect to the church of Jesus Christ. We are called to submit ourselves in humble faith to our risen and exalted king who in his kindness towards us has delegated a particular jurisdiction of his authority to accomplish his purposes. So neither the elders nor the congregation can overrule those commands of Christ. A couple brothers and I were talking earlier about some of those examples that we've seen and heard of, 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 of men who had the audacity to say, I don't care what the Word of God says, this is how we do it here. And the traditions of men began in subtle ways at first to usurp the authority of Christ. Elders may not rule in matters not given to them in the Word of God. Members of a congregation, even those members of a congregation acting in concert, acting in unanimity, cannot undermine the rules and commands of Christ. Don't we need to remind ourselves of this, pastors? Don't we need to be reminding our our people that God has placed in our care? But also what a blessing it is to be reminded that because I'm not in charge, I also don't bear the full weight of this responsibility. This is Christ's church. He is the one who's promised to build it. He is the one who promised to sustain her. He is the one who's promised to glorify her. So the exalted Jesus Christ has delegated to his duly constituted churches his own power and authority to carry out both the orderly worship of the triune God and the faithful discipline and instruction of his sheep in his name according to the clear instructions of his word. Can we pray together, please? Father, we, we bless you in the name of your Son, we thank you for the wisdom that, has, that you have expressed to us, your most perfect wisdom, expressed to us in the rules and commands of our, of our King. Father, will you grant us the grace humbly to submit to you, to find it a joy to seek to conform all of our thoughts, all of our actions, all of our ecclesiology, all of our worship, all of our discipline, both formative and corrective, to 
the rules and commandments of our Savior. Lord, will you grant to us the grace to, to perceive in our own hearts where we have reached for and grabbed for authority that isn't ours. Whether we are pastors or members, will you give us eyes of faith to see the sin that remains in us? And grant to us the grace to turn in, in humble repentance to our Savior, to confess that Jesus really is Lord and King of all, and especially that he is the head of the church without a rival. Lord, will you grant to us a unity, a sweet, precious unity as we confess these things together, as we labor to subdue the flesh, subdue the, the sin that remains in us, and as we seek to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and see ourselves conformed more and more to his image, trusting that you will use the means that you have established in your local church to accomplish all of your purposes. We ask this for Christ's sake and for the good of all of his churches. Amen.